you need special tools in order to open the Macintosh. And those tools are made by Apple exclusively. Um, and all the engineers forgot them at the office. And this is because Jobs insisted that the computer use non-standard screws. And the reasoning for this, it's later revealed, is that Jobs didn't want consumers to be able to open the back of the computer. Um, which was absolutely insane at the time. Ajinomoto has declared plans to triple its earnings per share by 2031, uh, which is a goal that will demand really significant overhaul of their current business model. You often hear from people of like our grandparents' generation where they talk about you would buy a vacuum and you would you, you would remanufacture that vacuum for 25 years even if mm. it became the most inefficient thing ever. You just you just did it because it was cheaper and it was easier. And we, I think like throughout the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, we've completely moved away from that mentality. And we're just like, just buy a new one. We have the money, yeah. just throw it out, buy a new yeah. one. And I, I yeah. just, I don't think that that lifestyle is compatible with our environment at all. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me today's episode are Emmett and Amory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. A quick word from our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business before we move ahead. Vodafone have recently launched their VHub digital advisory service, offering Irish businesses of all sizes free one-to-one digital support and advice. You don't even have to be a Vodafone Business customer to avail of this service. Search Vodafone VHub to book a call with one of the VHub digital experts, and we will leave a link in the show notes for today's episode. Anne-Marie, Emmett, welcome to another episode of Stock Club, another day in paradise. We've been recording nonstop, I feel like, for the last week, so I think we're really, mm-hmm. no offense to both of you, but I'm sick of the side of the... <laughs> Yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> when fairness, me and you, Emmett, I think are worst, actually. We go through like four meetings in about two days sometimes, which is rough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the worst thing about Zoom and this Zoom generation is that you are sitting in front of effectively a digital mirror all day. Oh, staring at yourself. You got to, you have to hide camera, hide selfie, whatever it is. Yeah, definitely when possible, but sometimes it's not possible. I sometimes I'm on a call and there I am and I can't get rid of me. Yeah. And it is so weird. Like imagine pre the virus, if a, a mirror was placed on a table every time you met somebody, it would have been the <laughs> in, strangest in, thing. In board meetings, there's just those hand mirrors <laughs> slightly to the right of who you're talking to. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you guys find that you stay at yourself like the entire time? Oh, 100%. That's what we're saying. Like, yeah. It's awful. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is awful. You, I mean, it's hard not to because, you know, well, it's the face you're most used to, but the one you've actually never seen in the real world. Yeah, and mm. that's what I was just going to say. The most messed up part about it is that that's the, you're always staring at the inverted view of yourself. You don't even know what you actually yeah. look like. Yeah. yeah. It's strange. You're right. It's so true. Like when we're looking at our lighting uh, mm. with a real image versus a virtual image, you know, your left is your right and your right is the left. It kind of messes with your head a bit. I'd say people on like uh, TV, like news announcers and stuff, get an awful warped self-image in themselves. I think it's inevitable. I mean, it really is weird. I've sometimes thought that if I lived alone, I'd have no mirrors in the house. I would have no interest in mirrors because honestly, uh, I've seen it. I've seen that face enough times to remember what it's like. I'd, I'd use it when I'm in the barber so I could just keep an eye on progress, but I'd have no interest in a mirror in my house. That is a fact. Yeah. But then so you get caught with that though, because then you'd like walk out of the house and you'd be covered in toothpaste or something. Yeah. You like big, wouldn't know. And and it would be like a long hanging time. from your nose. Yeah. And then you like, you, it would get to like one or two in the day and someone would finally be brave enough to say it to you and you would be going, Oh my God, how long have I been walking around like this? You know, like mm. it would ruin the last several days for you, I think. 
Yeah. Maybe my cousin did a half marathon with her underwear in her hair, which she had used to hold her hair back that morning and didn't notice. Now, she's an absolute ticket. She's one of the funniest people, but it was not a comedic move on her behalf. It was absent mindedness. It's so right. nice of you to put her on blast once again yeah, on this the, public platform. Thousands of people who listen to this podcast. Yeah. Right. Before you tell anything more incriminating about your family members, Emmett, um, we're going to Japan this week. So. With mm-hmm. a look into Japanese investments in general and the Nikkei 225 index as well. So the three of us have watched our free weekly newsletter, Charging and Fearless, pump out international investment after international investment. They're all very good ideas. But considering the value of the Japanese index in relation to, we'll say, other stock markets, it, it, it kind of the, the overall value of the market, that there's a relative lack of Japanese companies in that in that flow we'll say so can you explain why you think japanese companies maybe don't get as much attention as others well what's absolutely amazing mike is that many stocks over there in japan are trading way below their book value well according to wall street journal anyway and tokyo's exchange finds this wholly unsatisfactory Uh, and it all comes back to the fact that japanese corporations have been labeled as unprogressive and i have to say i have seen it myself for years and years it just they never seem to absolutely peak and deliver but apparently companies are now actively working to dispel that stereotype which might i suppose spell an opportunity for us international stock investors international people of mystery suddenly there's a surge in very specific comments by japanese companies floated in japan um, that speak to growth and transformation. Like, for example, Ajinomoto. Um, actually, lads, have you ever consumed a product from Ajinomoto? Uh, not that I know of, but I assume you're going to prove me wrong. Right. Are you? Yeah, it's just like some massive, massive company that has like oh, a dozen yeah. brands that we've. There will be like, oh yeah, yeah, I interact with that every day. Yeah. Well, you better believe that because they sell. <laughs> we, we didn't really play that role properly for you, Emma, did we? No. <laughs> okay. Right. So they do MSG, monosodium glucamate, okay, yeah, everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Uh, which, by the way, when I read about the company uh, last night, I was looking, I, I managed, I fell into an Ajinomoto or more to point an MSG rabbit hole of research. I never thought. Uh, but there I was late last night reading about it. And as a, as a sidebar thing, um, in the 1960s, a letter was published in a U.S. medical journal which alleged that eating Chinese restaurant food triggered headaches and heart palpitations and all these other symptoms, which led to this widespread uh, misperception that the cause was MSG. And that actually led to the term Chinese restaurant syndrome, CRS, which in turn led to anti-Asian sentiment in the US. And from all of that, there's a negative image of MSG that has become fixed in the public's imagination. And apparently it's it's all baloney and MSG is absolutely fine. That said, I would not sprinkle it on a <laughs> strawberry, but I have no fear of MSG. I've no ill will in my heart towards it. I've made my pieces was with it, MSG. Wasn't there the Irish, uh, was it Aromat? Is that MSG? Have you heard uh, of Aromat No. No. Oh, it's from like the, it's it's old school enough now. I think it's from the 90s or something. It was just like very bright yellow seasoning. Put it on. <laughs> I think it was, I think it was MSG, but I can't remember. Irish people will know about it. 
Suddenly, uh, Irish housekeepers were good chefs. Yeah. Their potatoes <laughs> tasted more potatoey, and their bacon tasted more bacony. Um, to totally play to the Irish stereotype. Yeah. Anyway, Ajinomoto has declared plans to triple its earnings per share by 2031, uh, which is a goal that will demand really significant overhaul of their current business model. I mean, there's only so many valid meals for MSG, you're right, but they're they're going to triple it. And then there's Calbi who do snacks. You'd die hungry if you're on the Atkins or Paleo diet and locked in the Calbi factory. They, they do potato-based, flour-based, corn-based snack foods and cereals. Basically, they do food that crunches when you eat it. <laughs> I'd imagine it's a good... Um, it's a good factory to sell beer in, though. Yeah. So if you're locked in that factory, a beer business would be a good one. Anyway, never mind. Um, anyway, it said earlier this year that it had been hampered by, quote, a conservative, inward-facing corporate culture and weak ability to affect change. And the net upshot is the 74-year-old company has pledged to revamp its business and boost its profits. And when I read the statement, I, I just made me realize once again the Japanese do contrite very well. They really are so apologetic. They they punish themselves really when they when they identify something that is perceived as a weakness. But if we look at other names that are far more familiar, Nissan, for example, has decided to increase its annual dividend with plans to raise it further, which signifies a, a really direct move to enhance shareholder value and trust. So these strategies are collectively working towards basically a singular goal, which is to convince investors that Japanese corporations are evolving, that they're embracing change, that they're determined to offer better growth and ultimately uh, better returns for investors like us. Mm. And the, the Nikkei, and uh, is it Nikkei or Nikkei? I, I'm not sure fully how to pronounce it. I've heard both pronounced, but the, I've always called it Nikkei. Yeah. Nikkei. I kind of, I kind of blend both pronunciations. <laughs> just kind of <laughs> Nikkei. There's some words I kind of fudge because I, I've actually hit a pronunciation wall. So anyway, let's yeah. go there. It's one of those words you have read it hundreds of times. But yes, I don't know yeah. how many times I've said it out loud. Nikkei. But we're going to go Nikkei for yeah, this episode right. anyways. Um, That's the Irish pronunciation. Nikki. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <there's> <laughs> how are you, Nikki? There's a father How's going, Nikki? All right there, Nikki. I heard you have an index. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the Nikkei has had a huge start to the year. It's, it, it was outperforming the NASDAQ. Is it still? I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah. So as you said, it's Japanese primary stock index. It's basically the S&P 500 yeah. of Japan. Uh, and it has witnessed a remarkable surge this year, up from about 26,000 points to about 32,000, yeah. which is a 12.5% is increase. So I'm not sure if that's ahead of the no, NASDAQ, be, but, but it's certainly been a performer. Yeah. 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 So what, 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 anyway, are the, what are the trends or the influences that have been behind this surge? You know, there's a few reasons. First and foremost, from what I can see, good old-fashioned currency dynamics. A weaker yen has made Japanese goods and services more competitive in the global marketplace. And this currency advantage, in turn, has benefited Japanese companies, which ultimately leads to positive repercussions for the stock index. So where previously it was too expensive to put MSG on your spuds, you can now do it. No problem. It's good value. So uh, then there's also, I suppose, joint first place for what's driving the index is endorsements from the gods. Like in this case, Warren Buffett has given his all knowing nod of approval to the Japanese market. And in middle of June 2023, Berkshire announced that their wholly owned insurance subsidiary had acquired about 5% of five Japanese companies, um, which are 
uh, Otochu Corporation, uh, Maro Benny Corporation, Mitsubishi, who we all know, Mitsu, and then Simitoto Corporation. So basically, Berkshire has gone in on mm. a buying spree, which we've all seen for nigh on 65 years is a very strong signal of of value so he's not international investor he's not the only yeah. one either elliot management are in there uh, dan yeah. loeb i think is in there as that's well right. a lot of active right. investors exactly. yeah they're all recognizing the same thing i think what you've mentioned already you're absolutely right so where previously it was an ignored market all these international investors with incredible track history of success and who were once apathetic towards the japanese market have started to redirect their capital and i think um some of this renewed interest is due to growing skepticism about other markets uh, like china which is prompting investors to seek alternatives in apac and japan with its blend of really established corporations and brand names that we all know and trust and have seen our entire lives and then emerging innovation and then a, a bunch of companies who really have sat up straight and started to promise investors that they're really going to focus on what matters it is an attractive proposition and then there's other factors as well like the overall robust uh, robustness is robustness a real word but the overall robustness of japan's economy which definitely has provided i suppose a solid backdrop against which companies can actually thrive mm. and we've discussed this before i think it was me and you emory around the kind of mm. complexity of the corporate governance over there and there's a lot of yeah. companies that own shares of other public companies so if you have someone like warren buffett or even paul singer from elliott management who can come in and crack the whip and tighten things up it seems like it's low-hanging fruit for a lot of these major investors if they focus away from complexities and simplify and just bring it into just how do we get shareholder returns up to a point we want basically so i think mm. there is there is a lot of opportunity there um emmett you mentioned this earlier the price to book ratio so why is it so significant in japan and what are the limitations to that yeah it, the price to book ratio has really emerged as this really salient metric as a benchmark for valuation, not just in in Japan, but everywhere, really. And the Tokyo Stock Exchange noticed, I suppose you could say, that nearly half of its listed entities were trading below their book value. That's unbelievable. And it maybe sounded alarm bells. And as I'm sure our listeners know, when companies trade below their book value, it indicates that a market values them at less than their net assets, which really is a concerning sign for investors and it highlights potential issues mm. with profitability. It's more and... more concerning sign for management, no? <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, you're right. You they're being, think, they're you being think... painted by saying they're worth minus value to a company and what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I've always celebrated management teams that lowball their expectations for the quarter or half year, year ahead. And we've always said it's great when you see a, man, a company smash its own targets quarter after quarter but it seems that um there's an excessive helping of modesty from japanese businesses and leaders and there's this fear of not thinking big but promising big yeah. so they definitely um consistently under promise now that actually leads to and do they over deliver not necessarily but i suppose when as much as it's concerning for investors and you're right absolutely concerning sign for for management team it really does indicate that there is some unrealized value or unacknowledged value i mean there's value sitting there but will it ever be acknowledged and like peter lynch in his book one up on wall street which we speak about 
regularly on the podcast here identifies the, I think, six or seven or eight types of companies. I can't recall how many he said, but one was a value play. And in the in the example he gave in the book, um, it's like a, was it Nina Paper? Was it Nina Paper? It was, it was, it was a company that owned the land it owned lumber. was worth more right. than the market cap or something yeah. like that. Yeah, It had millions of acres of lumber, as far as I recall. But the point that Peter Lynch said in the book is that this um, unrealized asset may never be recognized. So you might say, wow, this company is A, B, and C, that the market is discounted to zero, but will the market ever spot that? Anyway, look, yeah. for- difference between, a, price- difference between a value play and a value trap, I suppose, isn't it? I, that's exactly it. So the price to book ratio offers a straightforward tool for comparing companies within sectors. And this helps us identify undervalued stocks, but it really is limited because there is no one size fits all metric. Any investor who's really been around the block a few times realizes you just cannot compare apples to oranges. So the price to book ratio might be effective for certain industries, um, but absolutely is useless in others. For instance, it's not really useful for sectors like banking where giant banks uh, like their raw material is cash, so they might have capital reserves on the book or have a ton of debt outstanding to their end customer. But on the book, when you look at the price book ratio, it does not look well. And then on top of that, it doesn't capture um, intangible assets, which is really flawed uh, when a significant portion of modern companies lies in intangibles like intellectual property and brand value and goodwill. And, you know, going for something that heretofore has never been done before and I very often on the podcast talk about CRISPR not just CRISPR therapeutics but CRISPR as a human pursuit um how are you going to use a price to book uh, valuation for a business that is out to utterly change humankind with something that has never been done before so anyway look net uh, net bottom line is that when you use the price to book ratio it carries a risk of oversimplification and it's fine if you understand a dozen or 20 companies on your spreadsheet so to speak and you realize they're all broadly businesses that you can use price to book for but when you apply it to an entire nation as listed on a stock exchange in this case the nikki uh you you basically see it's <laughs> you basically see its flaws yeah I, I suppose it's recognizing something is undervalued isn't mm. the whole hog you know some things are undervalued for reasons and figuring that out is a, is as much or if not even more important in the last couple of years even the last 12 months since we launched charging and fearless i have awoken to the criticality of having a broker or at least a couple of brokers that allow you access to markets beyond the two big ones in america and definitely new york, new york stock exchange and nasdaq are the two exchanges that i suppose are ring fence around the safest investments I'm not saying that what i mean is governance is best and it's at its peak in america and the standards by which you need to adhere to in order to list your stocks on the two big exchanges in america is the highest and sarbanes oxley is there but there's massive massive value untold value in dozens and even hundreds well nearly hundreds of other stock exchanges around the world um like sweden is an incredible stock exchange i'm looking at stocks um and i'm looking at the output of a tool we're building for something we'll unveil soon enough um and sweden is an amazing hunting ground for great investments as is norway as is denmark 
as is Japan. And really, you, traditionally, if you like, I have logged on to my broker. My my main brokerage account is TD Ameritrade, soon to be Schwab. Uh, actually, Schwab, the day after tomorrow, they're fully switching over day after tomorrow, as we record on Wednesday, 30th of August. Um, <laughs> but I know that they, um, like they have pretty far reach. They have a wide reach into a lot of exchanges, but I'm seeing more and more value that really requires a broker who can uh, settle almost anywhere you want. And I, I'm a huge believer now in, in retail investors looking at the reach of their broker as opposed to just the two big ones in America. Yeah. And there's a cyclicality to it too. Um, I think mm. Ben Carlson wrote a great piece recently about international diversification and we'll have short-term memories here because US stocks have outperformed everything by a country mile in the last, we'll say yeah. 10 to 12, 13 years. But before that, international stocks and emerging market stocks were far outpacing the US. So mm. it does flip flop a bit. So it's, it's, it's important to kind of to keep the eye out, I suppose. Yeah, I was speaking to Chris Mayer recently. Um, I've had a few chats with him, author of 100 Baggers, again, in preparation for a new My Wall Street product. And, and effectively, he named two businesses that he has very, very high conviction for. Um, and and that let's just say if you're going to try and find hundred bagger, you put these near the top of your list. And um and to buy them is tricky. Mm. Like it's difficult. It's not just uh, log on there now um and throw a few bob in. It's actually a bit of a it's a bit of an odyssey to try and find a broker that will help you buy them. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it on that teaser there, Emmett. So um Amory, we're going over to California, very far away from Japan. Uh, this is a pretty serious 180 for Apple. So it's now actually supporting the right to repair bill that's currently looking to be passed in the California courts. So why is this such a big deal, both for Apple and then for its customers as well? Yeah, um, it's a pretty huge, I think, significant cultural shift um, for Apple. If you ever go and watch that movie, Steve Jobs, the one that has Michael Fassbender in it, not the one with Ashton Kutcher, very important there. Um, there's this pivotal scene kind of in the beginning of the film, and it's immediately before the Macintosh computer is going to make its 1984 debut. Very intense. They're in the hall. They're preparing for this live event. And there's a system error in the computer. And one of the engineers comes over and says, if it's a hardware issue, we can't get into the back of the computer. And Steve Jobs is like, okay. And uh, Joanna Hoffman, who is Steve Jobs' right-hand woman for a number of years, who's played by Kate Winslet, is really confused. And she's like, what do you mean you can't get into the back of the computer? Just open the computer. Um, and it's revealed then that you need special tools in order to open the Macintosh. And those tools are made by Apple exclusively. Um, and all of the engineers forgot them at the office. And this is because Jobs insisted that the computer use non-standard screws. Um, and the reasoning for this, it's later revealed, is that Jobs didn't want consumers to be able to open the back of the computer. Um, which was absolutely insane at the time because at-home computers were incredibly expensive and it was not uncommon to hear somebody building their home setup piece by piece or, you know, they would make an initial investment into a computer with the assumption being, okay, I will update the RAM in six months or nine months or whatever. So the fact that he was arrogant enough in 1984 to say, no, we're going to ship a, a, a computer that no one should need to open um, was pretty insane and it's mm. like the point of that scene is to introduce the concept to the audience and also to kate winslet's character that apple from its very conception was building a closed loop system you know from the very ground up they wanted to own and control absolutely everything that they were producing um but i think it also is an even greater testament to the perfectionism that jobs had and his belief that like a truly user-friendly computer should be absolutely perfect from the moment it touches a user like it should never even cross somebody's mind 
a desire to open their device and try messing with it. You know, he was so obsessed with design and aesthetic and the way things looked because he knew that that would inform also the internals. You know, he he felt that all Apple devices should be like magic when they arrive. And you remember like some of those presentations, like I remember when the iPod was introduced, it really was like that. You know, people were astounded by the technology that they were able to pull off. Um, and that culture has really been maintained at Apple. This idea that you really shouldn't mess with anything the way that we give it to you is how it is meant to be. Um, you know, we have seen that even after the passing of jobs, like that has been maintained. And, um, you know, we can look back at instance, instances in which it has gotten them in hot water. You know, a few years ago, it was revealed that Apple had installed software into all the iPhones to slow them down as they got older in an attempt to preserve the battery. But this has not been kind of said to consumers. And consumers got upset. They basically said, I would much rather maybe just replace my battery than have the understanding that my phone is going to slow down. And, you know, Apple, on the other hand, was probably arguing, well, you know, we designed this technology that it will eventually be replaced. And we would, you know, if you want to have a nice experience, we would much rather prefer that you get a new phone with a new screen and a new camera and a new battery. But um, anyway, that's not really the way that the world has ended up working as iPhones have um, become kind of more prominent. Um so this is a pretty extreme pivot. Apple is basically changing the definition of what they think is user friendly. And probably some of this is probably born from the fact that like this is no longer the 1980s and 90s. People are very, very comfortable with computers and with electronics. They use them absolutely every day, every hour of the day. And so probably the idea of opening up one of your devices and making an adjustment or even just like having the understanding that, hey, like at some point, if I become frustrated with something, um, I can take it in and just one aspect of it can be replaced or I could take it open and put a new battery in. I'd say consumers find that less daunting and see that less of a reflection of shoddiness and more just a reflection of, of an ability to kind of fully own a product. Um, it's probably also simply a reflection of Apple's ability to find a way to maintain its design standards while making the phones be easy to open and repair. For a really long time, I remember it was like in order to replace the screens on iPhone devices, you had to heat the phone up in order to get the glue to unstick because they had designed them in such a way that it was like once the screen was on, it was never coming back off. And so it meant that when you go to these repair shops, they were really doing work that like Apple had never conceived being possible. And so obviously then, you know, the likelihood of that screen lasting more than six or nine months was pretty low. Um, and interestingly, actually, Apple, this is something that's been kind of bubbling away in the background. It's been in the works for a bit. Um, Apple expressed their openness towards um, the shift kind of within the last year to two years. We could see things were kind of on the horizon. But this right now is them really coming out and saying, OK, yeah, um, we're on the same page. Um, the, re the way that they did that is they wrote an open letter uh, to California State Senator Susan Eggman wonderful name, um, that they would be supporting her bill, which is SB 244, um, which will require vendors of consumer electronics and appliances to make sufficient documentation, parts, and tools for repairs available to customers and independent repair shops. Um, and while this is just a single bill that they've written a letter of support to, there are 14 others currently sitting on state floors in the United States, and the European Union has proposed very similar legislation. So as of right now, probably getting um, on the right side of this is just like probably a forward thinking business move as well, because, you know, if it's coming down the line, you may as well be ready. Mm. So what, what are the motivations then behind Apple getting on the right side of this? Like they've been yeah. pretty much fighting it for what, 20 years, more or less. Oh, you're yeah. saying, yeah, you're saying 1984, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, my optimistic side says love of the consumer and the environment, and my pessimistic side says money. Um, so as I kind of mentioned in the last question, they've been trialing this already. So in 2021, they announced the self-service repair program, which was small. It was kind of like a beta tester. It only initially started in the U.S., and that allowed customers who were comfortable with um, the ability to gain access to tools and parts to open their iPhone 12 and 13. And then a couple months later, they rolled it out that they would allow consumers to open the Mac computers that had an M1 chip. Um, so that was kind of, you know, ones that Apple themselves had manufactured more of the internals. Um, and this program was pretty interesting um, because not 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 even two years prior in 2019, Apple had gone in front of the House Judiciary Committee and argued that by doing their own in-house repairs, they had never, ever made money. They said, hey, we have allowed consumers to bring in devices to have batteries replaced or have screens replaced for over a decade, and we have never, ever turned a profit on that service. So this like just isn't something that we can feasibly do. And then 2020, when they pop up, they go, eh, never mind. You know, if you want to do this in your house, fair enough, we'll sell you the parts. Um, but as we just kind of know from our own usage and, you know, looking at statistics and we know that iPhone sales are slowing and iPhone sales make up a significant portion of Apple's revenue. You know, we end up keeping our phones for longer. I think I have an iPhone 11. I have had that at in December. I will have had that phone for four years and it's fine. Like it works fine. I've not really yeah, thought about getting a new they, one. I'm very, cause they got caught slowing down phones. So yeah, I'm very much <laughs> kind of like, do you know, I like I had an iPhone five prior to this one and I used that thing until it would not turn on anymore. Yeah. I was like, I just, it just didn't have motivation to kind of swap it out. Um, and so I would say Apple has sat down, they probably crunched the numbers and they determined, listen, this is inevitable. People are keeping their phones for longer. So we may as well get some revenue out of them. And as anyone who's like walked around any kind of major city, we know that there are an awful lot of phone repair shops that are making money doing this work anyway, using unauthorized parts, stuff that's been taken off of old devices and pretty shoddy workmanship. And I would say Apple is just going to attempt to box those players out and make this an authorized service. According to an article in The Guardian, Already, we know that the way that Apple has priced its authorized parts to third-party vendors and third-party repairs people, it is almost impossible for these shops to compete with Apple in terms of pricing. In many cases, Apple is going to offer the cheapest prices for its work that will be authorized and insured. So really, for most consumers who are thinking like me, who are thinking, do you know what, I would like to keep this device for five or six or seven years, they would probably say, do you know, it's worth paying the premium on having this repair service done because I know it will be insured. And the likelihood of, you know, the screen going black after six months being going to have to go to another repair shop and pay again is low. Mm. Um, so I say that's the market here that they're um, tackling. I would, if we hazard a guess now, Apple actually announced yesterday, so the 29th, that it will be having a big iPhone conference on September 12th. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them come out with like a big repairs spec and, you know, consumer ideas section. I wouldn't be surprised to see them say, okay, from now on, we would recommend that consumers have the batteries in their phones replaced every year or every two years. And, you know, oh, we will offer the ability that as we bring out new cameras, you can have your phone brought in, you can have the camera replaced. Or, you know, if you want to upgrade the internal chip, that will be fine with us. And I think that's a big, big key thing because you have to remember that Apple has spent the last two years building out its in-house component manufacturing. It will begin making its own iPhone chips by the end of this year in Arizona, and it is already manufacturing the M1 chip for the computers, effectively boxing out Intel. So I would say as well, there's probably a more realistic opportunity here to turn a profit because it's controlling more of that infrastructure. Um, it's again, yeah, it's like there's maybe, there has to have been a massive shift since 2019 that this is now financially viable for Apple. I cannot see them 
just, you know, throwing in the towel and saying, yeah, we'll just resign ourselves to think that people will only will keep their devices for seven years. Um, that being said, it is still worth remembering that, uh, you know, the hardware is important, but the software rules the day. And, you know, as we have seen over the last couple of years, as they release iOS updates, oftentimes, if you have a phone that's older than about six years, they will announce to you, oh, the new iOS will not be coming to your device, which is fine for a while. You usually get away with it for about a year. Um, but then it gets to the point where like apps will no longer work because the companies are no longer supporting the older versions of the apps. And then usually you get hit with some kind of security concern down the line because Apple isn't releasing updates to the security system as well. So while this is, you know, a fix for kind of the middle ground of holding on to phones, I certainly don't think Apple is going to be repurposing and remanufacturing iPhones to have them have a 10 or a 15 year shelf life. Yeah, I have a little kind of out there theory about this and it's entwined with the iOS, the 14, 14.5, the pr privacy update, basically that set all advertisers on fire. Um, yeah. Is, is Apple management just trying to do everything they can outwardly and visibly mm. to stay on the right side of regulators and kind of be looked at as protecting consumer while they build up this three, yeah. $3 trillion behemoth that just dominates yeah. everything? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you could be right there. That conference that I mentioned, the iPhone conference that's happening in September, that is actually also the same event in which Apple will be introducing the first iPhone that will feature a USB-C which was a regulation that was put in place by the EU in an attempt to reduce the number of electronic cords and charging cables that are being produced. Um, so that, again, is Apple bowing to regulators and saying, okay, yes, we will remanufacture our products to meet these standards. Yeah. But I actually think the thing that you said there is is interesting. Um, I think it's less of a play for regulators and more actually of a play for consumers. Um I, I think that Apple gets away with a lot because they have been able to adopt almost like a sense of justice into their branding effectively. A sense of we will make the right decisions. We are on your side. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think it allows Apple to often sidestep the kind of the lumping in to big tech when we criticize huge corporations. You know, we we will rake Amazon and Meta for not thinking of consumers first, of thinking of profit first, of making, you know, things very, very, it's making things difficult for consumers to understand, making it so that we don't really, we, we can never sit down and say, how much data is Meta actually scraping about me? Where is it going? Who is it being sold to? You yeah. know, we, think, of, think of how much more is in your iOS and iCloud oh, and all the rest, like, but it's just not a question. Yeah. Like we could probably make an entire podcast about the frustrations of trying to cancel Amazon Prime. Yeah. And yet Apple has complete control of the iOS Apple Store inf infrastructure, which basically means that all apps have to be effectively sold through them and they take a huge portion yeah, of the so percentage. Like, what is it? Two, 250 of your Amazon Prime inscription goes to Apple? Yeah. 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 If it's been made through the, the App Store. So, um, yeah, I think like this is kind of the goodwill that they that they are happy to take on. You know, because they have clearly, I guarantee this is two or three years worth of research has gone into this. You know, Apple doesn't do anything in a reactionary way. Yeah. Everything is planned. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just them trying to appear correct. And um, I think the reason that people get so upset about right to repair is like you feel like you're being wronged because you think I own this thing. I, I should be able to do whatever I want. I should be able to open it up. Um, and I think that sentiment is captured really well in this like really wonderful article that came out a couple days ago in The Atlantic. It's called Good News for Your Sad Beaten Up iPhones by Damon Beers. And he says, even if many people wouldn't want to take the time to crack open their own phone and mess around with it, uh, there is a sense 
that a principle has been violated. If you own something, something that you have paid for with a lot of your money, shouldn't you have the ultimate say over how that thing operates? If you want to put a slice of deep dish pizza in your toaster, you can put a slice of deep dish pizza in your toaster. Then when the toaster breaks, you can fix your toaster. Repair keeps the machine running, keeps you from spending money on a new one, keeps trash from piling up in the world. There is no such thing as a responsibly manufactured phone. They are wasteful, destructive little things demanding rare earth minerals for their construction to say nothing of the carbon emissions, the toxic byproduct from the mine. And it, it, I think more and more people are becoming aware of that or becoming of this thing of like, that is not realistic that I get a new phone every two years. And also, I don't think there's like Apple no longer justifies upgrading every two years, because even when they bring out new iPhones, the technology has rarely advanced to a degree that you're like, yeah, I will spend another $1,500 to get a slightly better camera. I don't mm-hmm. think like we are no longer in, in that world. And Apple has for quite a number of years now, but been trying to position itself to say, oh, we're, you know, we are environmentally friendly. You know, in that piece, it's mentioned rare earth elements that go into phones. Apple for the last, I think, seven years has been working very hard to recycle old rare earth materials out of the old phones and put them into new ones. So they are kind of already on the right side of that in a kind of back end way. This is very much trying to approach it from a consumer facing way. Um, so, you know, it's, it is, it is a little bit dubious. It is Apple trying to say we are the good guys yeah give us your money bit of a Um, branding exercise almost yeah but i am also very interested to maybe see what the stats are in terms of does this prevent more uh does this slow down the iphone turnover rate because it is at the end of the day it is an environmental issue (laughs) like it is horrible the way that we have just we now buy things and turn them over so quickly and it also makes me think of you often hear from people of like our grandparents generation where they talk about you would buy a vacuum and you would you you would remanufacture that vacuum for 25 years even if mm. it became the most inefficient thing ever you just you just did it because it was cheaper and it was easier and we i think like throughout the 80s and 90s and early 2000s we've completely moved away from that mentality and we're just like just buy a new one we have the money yeah. just throw it out buy a new yeah. one and i, I yeah. just i don't think that that lifestyle is compatible with our environment at all so it's not but are, do apple have monopoly on this let's call it right to repair thing because i had i was up in my attic clearing it out not too long ago and i found an old computer uh, which i didn't dispose of because i didn't want to send it down to an electrical waste bin without removing the the hard drive and i decided right i'm doing it now and talk about non-standard screws clasps and clips on a dell it was yeah. unbelievable i spent a whole saturday afternoon drilling and hammering and trying to get into this thing it was like trying to break into the world bank i, I was only short of trying to go out and buy some dynamite to open it i've never had a harder technical engineering project uh, and i'd be pretty okay with these I, things. i'm just I i'm just reminded you know that scene in zoolander where they're like the files are in the computer <laughs> just be like emmett is yeah that's right that's right i'm standing on the table banging it <laughs> yeah, and and honestly, I I so the 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 customer problem, if you will, that you described there, Amory, is one that I have lived, but it wasn't with an Apple. I wouldn't attempt to do it with an Apple, but I certainly have had it with uh, other machines, and in this case, a very old Dell that was sitting out yeah. in my back garden I, with with tools strewn everywhere. I do think the industry has followed in Apple's footsteps and felt as well. Oh yeah, we should because it, they make more money just saying buy a new laptop. Um, but I think the real testament to like how real this promise is from Apple is when we see what the documentation looks like, because that is part of the bill is when this goes through is they have to provide 
clear instructions of like how everything works and how you open the phone and how, you know, if you want to replace the RAM or the processor, this is how you would do that. This is what every Mm -hmm. component in the computer looks like. And Apple is very good at making consumer facing educational content for other things. But if they don't really want people to be doing it, they will make a very boring, ugly little guidebook that, you know, you won't want to bother with. But I think if it's if it's done very well, I think then it is a realistic expectation of they believe people will do this. They believe people will open their phones and try and replace elements of it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, I like that kind of take. Okay, um, we were talking about Japanese stocks there and where one place where you can get new Japanese stock ideas is Charging and Fearless. So that is our weekly newsletter. It's completely free. No one else is covering the markets we covered uh, where we deliver to you a weekly stock pitch that could be from anywhere in the, or anywhere in the world. And we are going to make an intention to put more from the Nikki index as Emmett so so eloquently <laughs> called it. Um, so it's a completely free stock pitch every week. You'll have it read in about 30 seconds flat and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you, which is where you get an edge. So you can sign up now in the show notes for this episode. Okay, let's run through a uh, big deal or no deal, Emmett. This one is funny. OpenAI launches a business version of ChatGPT that competes directly with Microsoft, which is pretty odd considering Microsoft is uh, OpenAI's largest backer and investor. Big deal or no big deal? OpenAI claims it will run twice as fast as the paid version and that data from customers of the product will not be used for the training. Uh, But on the other side of the wall, Microsoft has also released its own ChatGPT-based product uh, Bing Chat Enterprise. And it's worth noting that OpenAI and Microsoft are separate companies and have had occasional conflicts. Well, I suppose it's hard to say if the big deal or no big deal at the moment, but when you consider the unprecedented impact that GPT had on retail users, everyday users, I'm going to say that this is a big deal. I would not like to be competing with GPT even if I was Microsoft. So yeah, I think it's a big deal. Right. What about yourselves? What do you think? Well, I wouldn't want to be competing with anything that I own 49% of. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like a, yeah, that's true. That seems yeah. like that's so true. Man United own in half a Man City. Like. Yeah, yeah, that's a fact. That is a fact. Yeah, It's kind of, but it, it doesn't remind you of like, um, it's like when a child tries to overthrow their parent. You know, it's like, it, it mm. is, it's the kind of changing of the, the guard a bit. I'm interested to see... Uh, how good it is and how, how much it eats into Microsoft's uh, business. Yeah, you, you could see like something, I I'm not sure. Excel is a perfect example. If you could just have a little text box to say exactly what oh you God, want to do yeah. without knowing about macros or formulas or anything like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Okay, um, Amory, this is straight out of the big short basically, but Zillow, oh, yeah. Zillow Home Loans is now offering mortgages with a 1% down payment option. Big deal or no big deal? Um, big deal, bad idea. We'll just <laughs> yeah. say that. So it's uh, yeah, you go one percent. You can get a mortgage with one percent down. Zillow will give you two percent for free. Happy day. But you know your interest rate is probably still going to be six percent. So uh, six is more like eight. Yeah. Um. This is Zillow has gotten into this space before. They were doing the i buying thing back in 2020, 2021. That didn't work out. They got out of that space. Um. They have been underwriting mortgages already. That was kind of where they had been trying to move in the last year or two. With the idea being, oh, maybe if you were searching for homes on Zillow, then you would want to get your mortgage to them. They haven't turned a a, a profit on that yet. Um. Was it last quarter? 167 million dollar 
loss from that section. So they have kind of infrastructure set up. So I'm kind of wondering, is it them being like, well, may as well try it out. Um, so what, what could go wrong? I know. What could go wrong? I, and it's, um, I was, I read an article about this and the top comment on it was very smart. Where was someone being like, if you cannot scrape together more than 1% for your mortgage down payment, what's going to happen? Like if your roof leaks or you need to get yeah. like new floors or something, you know, you do any kind of maintenance in that home, you are likely not going to have the cash on hand in order to deal with it. So it's just, it's not, it's a recipe for disaster. Don't do not get a mortgage through Zillow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's like we could do a whole episode on this, but the US housing market at the minute is in such a flux. I think the average mortgage rate people have on their homes is 3.6% at the minute. Mm-hmm. And the current going mortgage rate, if you were to buy a new home, is like 7.5, I think. Oh, so there's such a supply glut there. No one is going to sell because they would get such yeah. a worse mortgage off it. And then I also saw that I think 20% of new homes are being bought by investors as well. So it's it, it's like one of the most unaffordable housing markets and one of the most hardest to attain a house housing markets I think there's ever been. So I, something's really going to have to change there. Yeah, but we even and the have American that dream with the white picket fence. Sorry, Emery, like the American dream with the white picket fence is still is it still intact, Emery? Do you think that your peers in America have abandoned the idea of home ownership or haven't embraced it just yet? Um, I don't necessarily, I don't think they have abandoned the idea. I think it's kind of been taken from them. Mm. You know, I, I, you see a lot of statistics about like, um, how old on average people were when they buy their first homes and they're usually in their mid to late twenties. And I know that people are not getting married as young, so that's a contributing factor. Um, but not like millennials have effectively almost been completely boxed out of, of the housing market. And like we had terrible statistics come out about Ireland recently. It was something like people under the age of 29 in Ireland. It was like 80% of them or 85% of them were living at home with their parents. Mm. Um, it was unbelievable. I actually didn't believe it. I, I no, that's yeah. absolutely incorrect. That cannot be right. But it, it, it's quite sad, really, that... Uh, there's so many layers to the problem. You could peel it back and get accusatory for, at any one point in time or any one policy, but on the big picture, it's a very, very complex equation. Yeah. I, yes. th- I think I think yeah. a major factor in what we're talking about Ireland, but the US as well, is just lack of supply. Both yeah. sides, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also just like a lack of regulation about who is allowed to buy new supply because on the same topic of Ireland, um, somebody ran an analysis. I think it was at the top one in... in- it was like an independent um, news organization ran analysis and they found that because Ireland is not one to like apartment buildings that's just kind of Irish Mm. people really want to own the piece of land in which their home sits but I do think like Ireland is becoming a major city we need to have apartment buildings and so there were some built last year and of the apartments that of new build apartments in Dublin that came available last year 90% were bought by investment like investment funds so like that's just a you know that will be held in perpetual rent by some poor individual forever that's right and i think i know we're going down a completely different avenue to our our core topic but i think government has made decisions to try and dissuade investors from sucking up all these apartments but their price point is at a place and their lending market is at a place where let's say a normal is single or couple you know, in the springtime of their life or career just can't afford it anyway. And Marie, you and I were talking about an apartment development 
not too far from where we both live, where it was one of these kind of, it was like a, one of these we work, whatever you call it, type yeah. places where co-living space. A co-living space, and the, they promised a price of. Can you can you recall there was a promised yeah. price of X, and then I went think to it y. was they had initially when they got the permission from the government. It was they so it's a co-living space, which would be like you effectively have like a very tiny studio apartment, but you're fine with it because they have a bunch of like community spaces. So they had like a movie theater, they had a gym, they had like big communal giant kitchens. If you didn't want to cook in your apartment, they had like massive sitting rooms and game rooms and that type of thing. And it was intended for like people under the age of 35 who, you know, they might be moving to a new city and be like, how am I going to make friends? So I kind of like that idea. But the the planning permission they got said that they were going to start, I think like 750 a month that was going to be the entry level unit and they came to market at i think 1350. Yeah. And that's so just, like yeah. that's insane. Greed, it's it's awful. Mm. It's awful. Mm. But uh right, we're going to have to nip this in the bud if we want to get in in under an hour for our podcast today, lads. Uh Amory, oh. you're going to close us out with a elevator pitch. Uh so this is one for the nerds. Uh what stock are you pitching to us? Yeah, this is this is a cool one. Like this was very unexpected when this came up. I, I liked this one. Um, so, well, Emmett, you're the only one who actually hasn't seen this yet. Um, do you know Warhammer? It's a game. The game? Yeah, yeah tabletop game. Yeah, Warhammer. Yeah. Um, the company that owns that uh, is called Games Workshop, and they invented Warhammer in the I think actually in 1984, same year the Macintosh computer came out. So, Smash cut to Steve Jobs up on stage yelling at an engineer, being like, "Go find the tools of the office." To some men in an apartment in England. <laughs> painting little figurines this is all happening at the same time um so warhammer is like i comparable to dungeons and dragons it yeah. has a very obsessive fan base we're very excited yeah but unlike dungeons and dragons there's a huge collector element to this because you buy the figurines and then they need to be painted so that's a big so there's like a whole cohort of people who all they, they just want to collect figurines they don't want to play the game and then there's people who are actually just obsessed with the lore of it because built around all these games is Tolkien-like, Lord of the Rings-like stories. They have magazines, they have books, they have um, video games now, um, audio series. Like, it's a whole, it's a huge thing. It's it's a world. It's definitely one of those things of, like, when you're outside of it, you're like, eh, whatever. And then as soon as you're in it, it consumes your entire life. Um, but it turns out that this business is just raking in the cash because it is completely vertically integrated. Who knew? Um and obviously, like a big part of this is culture, is community, is maintaining that aspect. Um, so they have a bunch of in-person retailers that they own. They own 526 in-person retailers all across the globe. 399 of those in-person retailers have one employee, the store manager. Because all wow. because it's meant to be this place, you know, where little fans go in and they get to buy their figurines or they get to have little meetups or they get to go in and play the game. It's like a little community space. It's a third space for people who love warhammer yeah and, and they were like you and you're need. cultivating your experience completely yeah. by mm. owning everything yeah and they were like so we only need one employee so all of their all of their locations are profitable all of them turn a profit which is crazy wow. so it means that they have a gross margin hold on <coughs> turn away for that one uh it means that they have a gross margin of 68 percent and an operating margin of 36 percent uh the company does and they and, and they can are, pay this is for a retail a retailer yeah. basically which is a nuts. retailer yeah they can pay a four percent annual dividend that's huge and, we and saw, all they do we is saw, make figurines yeah we saw the the chart you had in that this week's charging and fearless as well the return yeah. on capital employed is in the 
three figures, I think, for the last couple of years. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, 2023, 133%. Yeah, so that 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 works. That works in yeah. most places. Wow, that Absolutely is amazing. Crazy. Yeah. And it's a refreshing business model insofar as it's anti-digital. It's moving away from screens. Mm. It's going back to a form of um, gaming and community that existed in the 70s and in the 80s and when I was in college in the 90s. And there's something really, for me, nostalgic about it, even though I never really played Dungeons, actually never played Dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons at all. And I certainly never played um games workshops game what is it warhammer warhammer yeah yeah so but there's something about it that appeals to uh, me as a virtuous investment you know yeah. because it's good old-fashioned uh being a human yeah know? and here's the best part about it right um they just signed a contract this year for a tv show with amazon really? And it's going to wow. go to Amazon Prime, and it's currently it's in pre-production at the minute. They're figuring it out, and tied to it, and a producer in it, and I think he's going to star in it is Henry Cavill, who played Superman very famously, um, because he for the last like ten years he, he's obsessed with Warhammer, and he talks about it all the time, like in a lot of um, like in, in any interview he gives, he says, "Oh, the number one thing I do when I'm off is I go and I play Warhammer," and so it means that fans are obsessed with him because they're like they feel really like he is the responsible person to take up this venture. And so I think it'll be good for fans, but I also think we've had a lot of video games get adapted recently. We've had a lot of books get adapted recently, fantasy worlds, science fiction worlds that then get these massive, bigger, much larger cult followings. Like think of Game of Thrones. That went from like a niche book series that people who read really, really loved to absolutely everybody on the planet knew about it. So if Warhammer 40K, which is the the game that's getting adapted into a TV series, if that goes like The Last of Us and becomes very, very popular, it's going to funnel in a whole bunch of people into this world. And this world is primarily merchandise based. So that's going to be a huge bump to revenue. So very exciting times um, for Games Workshop. That being said, lots of people have taken notice of the of the of these exciting times. Current price to earnings is twenty nine, which is expensive. That is well, it didn't put is, off the CEO Kevin Roundtree from putting in three hundred grand's worth into it, the shares in August. Yeah, at the beginning of this month, picked up three hundred k. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, definitely something to look at. Kind of a fun one in my brain. Actually, when I was writing this up, I was wondering if it would get picked up by a media conglomerate down the line. It reminds me a lot of like Marvel of that thing of, you know, Marvel had decades and decades of building up its stories, of having this legacy, of having characters that people who were in that universe really, really loved. And then as soon as they were bought by Disney, it was like this massive accelerant of we can get Iron Man in front of millions and billions of people. Um, So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to get them picked up. But even just as a standalone business, it generates so much cash. It's like being handled so responsibly. They're obviously very good at curating their community. Um, So yeah, very impressive company. Okay. Very. So that's Games Workshop. It's on the London Stock Exchange and it is just in our most recent Charging and Fearless. So if you want to get the full story, do sign up in the show notes for today's episode. Okay, we're going to finish out with a quick word from our friends and sponsors at Vodafone Business. Vodafone have recently launched their VHub digital advisory service offering Irish businesses of all sizes free one-to-one digital support and advice. You don't even have to be a Vodafone Business customer to avail of this service. Search Vodafone VHub to book a call with one of the digital experts there, and we will leave a link in the show notes for this episode as well. Uh, Amory and Emma, thanks for joining me today and thanks everyone else for listening. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and we will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.